and welcome to a new episode of D-Talk, the podcast series of the International Diabetes Federation. I'm your host, Felissa DeRose. In this episode, we'll be talking about the latest diabetes numbers from the 10th edition of the IDF Diabetes Atlas. Since it was first published over 20 years ago, the IDF Diabetes Atlas has become the trusted source of evidence on the impact of diabetes worldwide. To find out more about the data in the Atlas, the methodology behind it, and what it means, I'm delighted to welcome the two co-chairs of the IDF Diabetes Atlas Committee, Professor Diana Magdaleno and Professor Ed Voico. Professor Magdaleno has over 15 years experience in epidemiology and heads the Diabetes and Population Health Unit at the Baker Institute, a group focusing on the epidemiology of diabetes and obesity. Professor Boyko is Professor of Medicine and Adjunct Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Washington and Staff Physician at VA Puget Sound Healthcare System in Seattle. Welcome, Diana and Ed. It's great to have you on Detox. Hi, Felissa. Great to be here today. I'm very excited to do my first podcast on diabetes. Hello, Felissa. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about the Atlas. Thank you so much for being here. It is an absolute pleasure to have the opportunity to chat with you. Diana, let's start with you. Tell me about the Diabetes Atlas and why it's such an important publication for the diabetes community. Okay, so the Atlas is a, it's a biennial publication. And what we really try to do is to estimate the number of people with diabetes in every country of the world. It's a document and a whole process which is intended to support the diabetes community in advocating for more action to identify those with diabetes, those with undiagnosed diabetes, those at risk with diabetes, and ultimately improve people's improve the care of people with diabetes. Thank you so much. How do you go about correlating data for the Atlas? How do you estimate the levels of diabetes around the world? So it's a complex process and it takes several years. And what we do is we collect data around the world from all types of diabetes. And we do this from a literature search. And we also do data calls to all regions of the world. And we use IDF regions to help us do this. And we form working groups for each type of diabetes. And they all do their own work and their own searches. And they bring the data in. And then our data is assessed for quality and representativeness. And they get ranked. And then we take the best data sources and we do a complex epidemiological model, which takes into account age and sex and urban and rural uh, distributions. And then we project, estimate the number of people with diabetes for that year. And then we project the number of people with diabetes for the a year, say 20 years in the future or 25 years in the future. And this time we're doing 2045. I, I'd probably also like to add that we only now use data from 2005, so we exclude all older data sources, and not all countries have their own 
diabetes data. And for those countries which don't have their data, we um, approximate what diabetes numbers would be. And we use nearby or neighboring countries to do this, countries with similar demography, um, language groups, culture and economy. And we, we estimate those countries without data by using their neighbor countries. That seems so fascinating. I have to say for me, seeing the Diabetes Atlas as a person living with diabetes, when I see the numbers, um, it just makes me not feel alone. <laughs> and speaking of numbers, Ed, like the headline for the figure, the 10th edition of the IDF Diabetes Atlas is that for in 2021, 537 million adults around the world or one in 10 adults now have diabetes. What does that mean for the diabetes community? It creates a substantial burden um, in terms of uh, uh, morbidity, also an increase in mortality for many, many individuals around the world who are affected by uh, diabetes. And just to uh, drill down on what, what this means, uh, so most diabetes is type 2 diabetes, and it's it, probably over 90% of cases of diabetes are type 2 diabetes, which typically has its onset in the adult years but is, has been increasingly reported in children now, which is very concerning. The other uh, type of diabetes that's uh, common is type 1, which often develops in uh, children. And then there's also gestational diabetes, which is diabetes that develops during pregnancy and usually resolves after the baby is delivered. So just to be clear on what we're talking about, when we're talking about 537 million adults with uh, diabetes, we're talking about mainly type 2 diabetes. So uh, the problem with uh, diabetes, uh, the underlying problem is, is high glucose levels in the blood. Uh, having high glucose levels over time causes a number of other complications. Uh, it affects the, uh, the retina of the eyes and can cause blindness. It affects the kidneys and can result in kidney failure and the need for dialysis or kidney transplantation. It affects peripheral nerves, which uh, cause uh, loss of sensation, loss of protective sensation, which can lead to foot ulcers, which can lead to infection and amputation of usually of the lower limbs. Uh, also, uh, the, the nerves can dysfunction and cause painful sensations for no reason, which uh, can create a lot of distress and it's quite difficult to manage. Also, diabetes is a recognized risk factor for cardiovascular disease, which is typically the leading cause of death in, in almost all countries. So this many persons with diabetes worldwide, besides the suffering, it, the economic costs are considerable. Uh, lost productivity is considerable. And uh, I just want to uh, give you uh, information on like a stratum of, of the world population. So uh, 75 to 79-year-old individuals worldwide, 24% of them have diabetes. So that's about one out of four. And I'll just mention that the 537 million adults aren't congregated in one country or one area. Uh, there's really no country that's spared um, this condition. Every ethnic and racial group is affected uh, by diabetes. So it, 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 it's, it's highly uh, prevalent, very common. It's affecting everyone, really. Uh, I mean, almost everyone has uh, an acquaintance or uh, a relative with diabetes. Uh, it's that common. And it, it means that uh, we have a lot of work to do, I think.
I would definitely agree um, with the work that has to be done. And I have to say, Ed, like when I looked at it as a person who has lived in four different spaces, uh, the Middle East, Europe, the Caribbean, and now the United States, most of those places I lived in just last year, I was looking at the statistics in each of those regions. And just like you said, like it impacts everybody. Like there's no safe space. Uh, how, how does the Atlas forecast that diabetes will change over the next 25 years? Well, it, it predicts more, more cases of diabetes, more individuals with diabetes, um, and the prevalence will go up, the numbers will go up, uh, and that's based mainly on the UN forecasted changes in population based on age and sex and urbanization, because those are three, um, well, two, two of those are risk factors for diabetes, and so when we, um, when we forecast, we use uh, the expected change in the population to figure out how many more uh, diabetes cases are going to be occurring uh, uh, over the years. And, uh, and that's how we come up with that estimate. Wow. I'm always surprised about it growing because there's so much conversation about prevention and like these techniques to like slow down the progression. Can you share like what are some of those conversations around slowing down the progression? Yeah, yes, I can. Uh, so, so there have been several approaches to reducing prevalence of diabetes. One is to target high-risk individuals and try to perform a lifestyle intervention and that's been shown to be effective in preventing diabetes, not preventing it, not reducing the risk to zero, but persons who have lifestyle interventions will have a lower risk of diabetes than persons who, who uh, are controls who do not have a lifestyle intervention. But it's uh, typically resource intensive and lifestyle interventions uh, tend to last for a few years and then people tend to go back to the way they used to um, live their life. Um, but nevertheless, even years after after a lifestyle intervention, there is uh, a decrease in the risk of diabetes. Um, and then there's thinking about the fact that uh, a major uh, risk factor for diabetes, namely obesity, is really very common in, uh, across the world. It, it's thought that this is due to an obesogenic environment that we live in with um, limited ability for exercise, with uh, uh, caloric uh, dense foods with uh, cities that are designed to not be walkable. Um, so there's less known though about interventions that uh, would really um, be effective in changing the environment and whether that that could actually be done. Melissa, can um, I add something to that? Yes, Diana, jump in. Apart from the high risk lifestyle interventions, because that's targeted at people with pre-diabetes, what we also need to do across the world, and we're beginning to do this, is implement some population-wide prevention approaches with diabetes. And that means implement an approach where everyone is affected by the strategy of interventions. So it'd be something that makes everyone lose a little bit of weight. So the whole population's BMI shifts to the left a little bit. And this could be a junk food tax, a sugar tax, changing the environment, putting it in paths everywhere. And if we can do this, we can really have a go at preventing diabetes across 
across whole of populations because many of the cases of diabetes don't necessarily come from those at high risk. And we actually need both targeted approaches and also um, population-based approaches of prevention to really make a change to these numbers because as people age, uh, people will, will become at high risk from diabetes. It's, it's a disease of, the, of aging populations and in most of the world we are aging, at least in the um, high-income parts of the world. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, when I hear prevention, I have to share with you all. In 2006, I started a healthy journey after coming back from this trip to Paris and I lost about 50 pounds. I thought I was on my way of like preventing all kinds of things, including diabetes. And then it turns out I got type one diabetes. <laughs> so I have diabetes. And still, I have to say that some of the things that I learned about healthier eating and portion sizes and exercise, they've actually helped me manage my diabetes better. Uh, so I'd like to say for anyone out there, um, some of those prevention methods for people with type two definitely helped me, even though I was diagnosed with type one some years later. Can I make a comment? So, so I just mentioned that the risk factors for type 1 are very different than type 2. Type 1 is thought to be an autoimmune process that may be triggered by an infection and not really related to living to an older age or excessive body weight. It has a different etiology um, than type 2. Oh, thank you so much for that information. <laughs> this is why I love these conversations because not only do our listeners get to learn, but I get to learn as well. Diana, how do the estimates differ in different regions across the world? Do you see a different picture in different areas in the world? Sure. So ethnicity is a strong risk factor uh, for diabetes and so certain ethnic groups have got a higher risk of developing diabetes and developing the complications that go with diabetes. And these are groups, the Indigenous groups, Pima Indians, Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, Can Canadian First Nations people, people who live on the islands, Pacific Islanders, people from the Middle East or South Asians, Southeast Asians, South Americans. They're all at higher risk of diabetes compared to Caucasians or people of European descent. And so we see lots of diabetes in the Middle East and we see lots of diabetes in Asia and we see lots of diabetes in um, middle income countries. And that's it's actually the area of the highest growth for diabetes for the future as well. It sounds like the areas with a lot of like societal and, and environmental stress. Are those factors that you look at in the Atlas? We don't really look at stress and the environment in the Atlas yet, but we are thinking about, always thinking about new new topics or new chapters to include in the Atlas. And I think a topic around environmental pollutants or changes to the environments and how they influence diabetes risk and diabetes numbers is surely a great idea. So what you said, Diana, reminded me of what Ed just said about risk factors and safe environments. When I started my health journey, I struggled to find a safe park to walk in. And it was then that I thought about how the environment impacts my ability to be healthy. Um, Ed, what did you find most surprising or like a worrying 
statistic from the latest edition of the Atlas? So I'll um, I'll mention actually two things. Um, one is that uh, the main growth in terms of number of cases is in middle income countries. And so we use the World Bank classification for low, middle and high in- income countries. Of course, uh, you know, being middle income, um, which is actually not much income at all, they're they're not well equipped economically to deal with uh, the cost of care of diabetes, prevention of complications, and treatment of complications. Uh, so that that was a surprise to me and to others who were involved in the atlas. And then the other thing I'll mention. Uh, is a comparison of this atlas to the previous atlases. So this is the 10th edition. There have been nine previous editions, and each atlas makes a forecast, and that forecast is always an underestimate. If we hold true to form here, and we don't want to, but if we do, then probably 2045 will be an underestimate. Wow. That's shocking me, Ed. Wow. So this question is for both of you. Um, Diana, you can start first, but every new atlas sees a further rise in the numbers and prevalence. What actions do you think needs to urgently happen to slow down the growth? I have a different view from most people on this. So while we've spent a lot of work in the world understanding how we can prevent diabetes amongst the people who are at high risk, so people with slightly elevated BMI or family history, I think that's expensive and I think that's about behaviour change and I think people regress back to their old behaviours in time. So I think we need to have a, a more global approach of diabetes prevention and we have to include those high-risk approaches, but also population-based approaches which are led by government, things where we can apply to everyone in the whole of the population to change their lifestyle, reduce their uh, BMI, um, reduce the intake of calories and reduce the intake of junk food. And that requires a concerted effort by governments, almost the whole world, almost together. And that's... Uh, governments talking to the food lobby, changing the environment. So we all eat better and uh, move more and we'll all hopefully lower our risk of developing diabetes in the future. Thank you. So, uh, well, I'll just add to that, that the changes Diana is recommending, which I agree with, uh, are difficult to implement because we all get used to doing things the way we do things. It's human nature and we have certain resources we expect and and certain pastimes and uh, to change is is, is quite difficult. Um, so, so they're challenging times ahead, I think. The next question, actually, it's our last question right now. Um, Our last question is, access to care was the theme of this year's World Diabetes Day, 100 years on from the discovery of insulin. How important is it to ensure that all people living with diabetes have regular and affordable access to the care they need? Well, very important. Okay, just to to be more specific, so Frederick Banting and Charles Best discovered insulin 100 years ago. They're Canadian uh, physicians and researchers, uh, just to uh, give credit to them. And just to mention um, the importance of insulin for persons with type 1 diabetes, it's essential for survival. So the treatment always involves giving insulin because the 
physiology of type 1 diabetes is loss of insulin production or very minimal insulin production. Uh, so survival depends on it. And uh, in parts of the world where uh, income is low, uh, access to insulin may be uh, difficult. And uh, this is a terrible situation because it means children will die since children uh, and adolescents uh, mainly uh, are the ones who are most affected by type 1 diabetes. So it's really the, the loss of the future uh, is happening because of impaired access to insulin. So ways to deliver insulin uh, to worldwide are, are, are very important uh, for type 1. Uh, type 2 is sometimes treated uh, with insulin as well, but typically survival does not depend on, on treatment with insulin. But type 2 is treated with many different medications that are available now, many more than when I entered uh, medicine uh, years ago. And some of them are very effective in preventing complications. Uh, so it's important for persons with type 2 diabetes to have access to these medications to control glucose levels um, in, in order to prevent the complications I mentioned before, which affect the kidneys, the eye, uh, the peripheral nerves, and the cardiovascular system. Uh, and um, now some of these medicines have actually been shown to reduce uh, mortality from cardiovascular disease. So uh, it's very exciting times uh, for um, for diabetes treatment in terms of available options, but uh, the impediment to treatment uh, due to limited um, financial resources is, is, is there to different extents across the world. So um, anyway, so it's important for regular and affordable access, and that's also a challenging situation. Thank you. Diana? I would just like to add, as Ed mentioned, um, good diabetes care is is really important to manage glycemia so we can prevent the development of complications. And also with complications, we are seeing a diversification of complications. So we know about the traditional complications, but we're seeing new complications like different manifestations of liver disease, NAFOLD, and we're seeing diabetes to be associated with development of dementia and depression and anxiety and and sleep disorders. And so we have to be aware of all these new manifestations of diabetes as people um, with diabetes seek out treatment for their diabetes. And the other point I wanna make about diabetes care is there's a new way of thinking about diabetes care, doing diabetes care um, in, has to be organized in a team-based approach. And these kind of um, new strategies of care have been implemented in Asia um, known as the war on diabetes. And they're actually starting to have some really good effects in um, slowing down mortality amongst people with diabetes. I'm just going to add to what Diana just said. Um, so education of the person affected by diabetes is really quite important because they're the main caregiver, typically. Uh, they're in some cases, uh, uh, the person with diabetes is regulating his or her insulin doses on a daily basis or several times a day. And even in the case of uh, treatments without insulin, it's still very important to take medicines uh, according to whatever prescribed regimen to uh, actually show up for uh, visits uh, to screen for complications and to take other measures that are recommended and prescribed to pre prevent complications. And uh, the patient is, is is a key player in this uh, as, as well, uh, since patients only typically have a few hours of contact per year with the healthcare system. Uh, so uh, education of how uh, they can best manage their diabetes 
uh, and remain healthy is very important. Thank you so much for this conversation. Unfortunately, we are wrapping up our time. But before we go, I just want to ask you, do you have any last things that you'd like to leave for our listeners? Diana, you can go first. Uh, I just want to say that I don't want everyone to think that this is all doom and gloom. The increasing numbers in the future are not necessarily inevitable. If we all just try to uh, live healthy physically active lifestyles that will go a long way in preventing your own risk of developing diabetes. So I have to agree with Diana and uh, uh, I just mentioned that uh, in trials of lifestyle interventions, persons at high genetic risk for diabetes actually uh, had a lower uh, risk of diabetes. So they also responded uh, to the intervention. Um, and also the other measures that Diana uh, recommended here on a population level uh, would have a beneficial effect. So um, yeah, so I agree. Uh, I don't want to portray doom and gloom here. I think uh, that we're much better at taking care of diabetes. We know much more about ways to prevent it. We know uh, which ways don't prevent it. And so I think we'll continue to make progress and, and hopefully have better um, statistics to report uh, in future atlases. Um, and the one last thing, Phyllis, uh, and people often ask me, what's the best exercise I can do um, to fend off my risk of obesity and, and then diabetes. And I say the best thing you, you can do is push yourself away from the table. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. Push yourself away from the table. Diana and Ed, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us to share these incredible, important insights of the IDF Diabetes Atlas and the state of diabetes around the world. For everyone listening who would like to learn more about the impact of diabetes in their country or region, we encourage you to visit diabetesatlas.org. The full IDF Diabetes Atlas 10th edition will be released on December 6th, and I can't wait to read it. And thank you, Diana and Ed, for joining. Thanks, Felissa. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, Felissa. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening and make sure to join us soon for a brand new episode of Detalk, Conversations in Diabetes brought to you by the International Diabetes Federation. <laughs>